This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. There's been an unsettling change in COVID protocol. Toronto Public Health is scaling back on contact tracing efforts, just as we are experiencing a substantial spike in confirmed cases. Now, this comes as the system really seems to be swamped. So while the number of daily tests has increased, there's a huge backlog in getting results. And the assessment centers are actually closed today to try to catch up and they're moving to an appointment-based system. So what does this mean for us and should we adjust our behavior to take this into account? I want to hear from you also would be happy to take your questions because I am about to introduce two very big expert doctors. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'd like to welcome Dr. Andrew Morris, an infectious diseases specialist at Sinai Health System and the University Health Network here in Toronto, and Dr. Matthew Miller, an infectious diseases researcher at McMaster University and a member of the Institute for Infectious Diseases Research and the McMaster Immunology Research Centre. Welcome to you both. Thank you so much for being with us. Pleasure to be My here. pleasure. Okay, let's start with Dr. Andrew Morris. You've been tweeting about this all weekend. What are your concerns? Well, you know, at least in the greater Toronto area, we have a pretty substantial rise in cases. Um, it's to the point where it's overwhelmed our testing system's capacity, and it's now overwhelmed our public health response capacity in terms of being able to contact trace and then get those contacts to self-monitor, isolate, and possibly even get tested. So those things are just part of uh, a greater picture where I'm quite concerned about this rapid rise in cases. I mean, I I found it a bit ironic that I don't know if it's just something that, that that the authorities didn't think about. So they increased the number of tests, but the wait time uh, is increased. And even in the pharmacies, which started taking asymptomatic people in, in special cases, like if you need to travel, if you want to go to a long-term care home, well, those results are, are delayed as well. I've heard of cases of people missing their flights because they didn't have test results a week later. Dr. Miller. Yeah, no, the, the turnaround time in, in testing is a major ongoing concern and, and the implications of that, I think, have, have been exacerbated by, um, return to school because now obviously we're entering, uh, the time of year when there's a lot of other seasonal infections that are not associated with coronavirus and children who experience symptoms 
and and then need to uh, have coronavirus testing before returning to school um, are also experiencing major delays, which has knock-on effects for their parents and caregivers, of course. And so, it's it's uh, it's really essential that the that the turnaround time for these tests be be much much better than than what we're currently experiencing. Uh, Doctor Morris, is that something that's doable? I mean, my thought is, you know, you can't just go and conjure. Uh lab techs? You need people who are trained or is it a machine issue or is it just a money issue that may be fixed if the money flows? Well, I think in the in the summer, it was a money issue. I think now the challenge we have is um, there are many factors involved in having these tests get performed. That includes having assessment centers staffed, having the transportation for the specimens, having the reagents and the other materials for the tests. And then having uh, trained um, technologists um, in the laboratory facilities in places where they also have more machines that need to be purchased with additional space for storing the specimens. So there are many steps along the way that are creating challenges for being able to ramp this up. I understand we'll be able to ramp up substantially over the next few weeks. But as you can probably gather, every day that we don't have increased capacity, uh, we're falling further behind. Yeah, I mean, my thought is, okay, um, so a result is delayed. Contact tracing is uh, a bit on hold or uh, scaled back. And so all kinds of people who've been in contact and who may actually have it are, are have no idea. Yeah, that's, that's certainly right. I mean, I think... Um, you know, we've moved into a stage where for the foreseeable future, I think it's very unlikely, um, given the daily increases in cases, that that public health is going to be able to return to the type of detailed contact tracing that was possible when case numbers were low. And so as a consequence of that, in order to get things back under control, it's going to require a massively disciplined, concerted public effort to, you know, put our mindsets back to where we were in the spring, where we were really limiting uh, our social contacts, um, our trips outside of the home, uh, in, in order to you know, stem ongoing transmission. Um, I think one, one really useful thing that, that people should be encouraged to do uh, where possible is to download uh, the COVID tracing app that the government uh, has put out, because at least that's one way um, to be able to disseminate warnings of, of potential exposures in the absence of public health directed contact tracing. I, I was just about to ask about that because apparently the take up is is really uh, small. And uh, even if people start downloading it now, or even the people who've downloaded it is, is apparently it doesn't work unless there's kind of a, a a crowd thing, and and a lot of people have it. Yeah, that's that's certainly right. I mean, the 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 way that this app works certainly um, depends to some extent on on uptake, and and the more people have it, the more effective it will be. I think that um, you know, arguably, that there hasn't been sort of optimal uh, communication about the way this app works. Um, uh, in terms of advertisements and 
and infomercials by the government. I think that um, some people had some trepidations around privacy issues um, that that would have largely been allayed if the uh, built-in anonymity intrinsic to the way this application is built was, um, you know, better explained. And speaking of better explained, I think there's a lot of things, I mean, I get that things are changing rapidly and there's rapidly changing guidance. But so, for instance, at the end of last week, what were they saying? No more bubbles? Is that official? Is that not official? Then we have some authorities like Eileen Davila in Toronto saying, please don't see anyone outside your your very immediate household. And people are saying, you know what, I'm, I'm being careful. And so... What is the situation with the bubbles? Do we have bubbles anymore or not? Um, yeah, I think the the clear answer is yes and no. <laughs> I think, I th- I think one could one could question whether or not we actually ever did really effectively have bubbles, and if we did, how long we had them. I think what you're pointing out are two real big challenges. One is there are many people involved in public health communication that for for let's say toronto that includes uh dr davila for toronto public health that includes dr david williams as the provincial chief medical officer of health that includes dr Teresa tam um, uh, nationally and all of those people may have uh, statements viewpoints and policies that they are going to recommend around how people sh- should conduct their lives the fact that there are three different people who each are, you know, probably qualified and um, in some ways responsible provide, for providing information makes it very difficult to have a consistent message. And then when you start adding the various levels of politicians, municipal, provincial, and federal, it makes it very difficult for people to understand uh, what they're meant to do. Okay, too many cooks. Uh, be- yep. Before we take a break, too many cooks. Answer me this. How is it that I think Ontario native Dr. Bonnie Henry is doing it so well in BC and uh, we're not? It's structural, <laughs> right? It, it's, you know, she's, she's essentially been delegated as the uh, provincial voice in BC. And we clearly, for a variety of reasons, haven't, we don't have that clear voice um, in Toronto or Ontario. And I think because of that, we're in the situation we're at. And and you don't uh, have, think it has anything to do with the way she uses her voice? I think that's part of it for sure. We know that Toronto Public Health has cut back on contact tracing and suddenly that is throwing a wrench into things because before the guidance was, uh, when you're thinking, do I need a test? It was if public health gets in touch with you and tells you you need a test, you need a test, and otherwise, you don't. And there's a backlog. I'm just rereading the number. The COVID testing backlog has reached 90,500. That's back on Friday. And it's taking days, uh, possibly more than a week in some cases, to get results. So... Um, what do we have to do, Dr. Morris? What do you think we have to do in terms of our own behavior? Well, you know, this is a disease that's transmitted by our behavior, right? When we are in close 
especially unmasked contact with people indoors, um, especially when it's crowded with poor ventilation, all those things make us more likely to transmit infection. So I think as members of society, we need to reduce all the situations where we meet even one, certainly two of those features. We want to be uh, pretty well non-social um, from a physical perspective, but as social as we can uh, via phone, video conferencing, or you know, outside at a distance. Um, and because we don't want people to be non-social, but we definitely want people to um, avoid those situations where we increase transmission. The problem is the government's tried to really encourage people to do that. Public health has encouraged people to do that. And yet we've failed to do so primarily because we have so many uh, sanctioned opportunities for people to, uh, you know, gather indoors. Uh, what do you mean, like restaurants and things like that? Yeah, I think I think there's there we end up having to make a value judgments on what we think is worthwhile indoor gathering or not. And everyone I think can make an argument for whether it's restaurants or nightclubs, bars, gyms, all those things. You can every, everyone can certainly make an argument uh, for all of those as a worthwhile re- things to keep open. The challenge we have is there's only so much kind of social credit that we have. And I would say that our priorities for congregation need to include schools, long-term care facilities, and retirement uh, homes, um, and healthcare institutions. And I think those need to be our uh, priorities for the time being. Uh, What about Thanksgiving? A lot of people say have very large dining room tables, and if you can socially distance inside, is that a bad idea if it's people who are or were in your bubble when there were bubbles? I mean, I think that one of the challenges is that the the bubble concept um, arguably worked okay when we had very, very low case numbers, uh, you know, in through the midsummer. The issue now is that no matter how careful any individual thinks that they're being, the the total rise in cases, especially in communities where where case numbers are really high, means that no matter how careful you're being, you know, your probability of becoming exposed is higher just by virtue of the fact that other people aren't being careful. And, um, and so I think, you know, people, people need to keep in mind that uh, the bubble also expands. So if you have 10 people in your bubble and then you invite five people over who have 10 people in their bubbles, well, now you have 60 people in your bubble virtually. And so, um, you know, people need to think really, really carefully about, about Thanksgiving dinner, certainly, um, and, and probably consider, you know, what their risk of exposure is based on, uh, you know, their personal circumstances, and then also the, the community in which they're living and, and what case rates look like within those communities. Are you expecting a spike, Dr. Morris, after Thanksgiving? Uh, it'll be delayed um, because all our spikes always are delayed. I think it will also be extremely difficult to know what the test spike will be versus the real spike, meaning because of our challenges with testing, it's very hard to know what will happen in terms of our testing numbers. But the real number of infections I would anticipate would uh, increase, and we normally see a one- to two-week lag 
um, from the actual day where infections are transmitted to when we see them uh, come up in test results. And are our test results now artificially low because of the delays? Absolutely. And do you have any algorithm or anything that's maybe telling you how uh, how deflated they are? Well, you know, we know that, um, you know, as of yesterday, uh, we uh, were behind about uh, 90,000 and change. And if we use the percent of tests that were positive, we can kind of figure out that those tests, which are a four-day lag, there were about 1,300 of them. So you can imagine that there's probably 300, 330 or so um, per day extra numbers uh, or extra cases that we're just not having tested yet. So when you hear around 600 and change today, it's really about 930, 940. Mm-hmm. And that leads to how many more infections tomorrow? I can't answer that one. It's beyond my math, I must, I must say. Um, so, uh, you know, it, w- we keep talking about the second wave, and I'm wondering also in terms of, we just had this conversation in, in the, the front half of the show, in terms of long-term care, uh, are you satisfied that this time it won't hit long-term care as badly as it did the time before, that it might manifest elsewhere? Or um, is that not a foregone conclusion? Uh, You know, I would like to hope that our response in long-term care facilities is going to be better, but I I think it's far from a foregone conclusion. We already are seeing worrisome increases in cases and staff and residents in long-term care facilities. Obviously, the hope is that uh, procedural changes uh, will um, help to prevent uh, widespread outbreaks in those facilities, as we saw during the first wave. But uh, as my colleague pointed out earlier, um, you know, we've, we've moved into a situation now where in addition to all of the restrictions that were eased in the summer, there are much more indoor social uh, and, and physical interactions as a result of school openings, for example, and our ability to protect uh, our vulnerable residents in long-term care facilities really depends, again, on trying to maintain the lowest possible transmission rates in the community. And so as soon as those rates increase, we are de facto putting those vulnerable individuals at, at much greater risk. Okay. Let us take a call from Danny in Scarborough. Hello, Danny. Yes, good day. And how are you doing today? Fine. How are you? Had, all right. I was say, uh, hope everybody had a great weekend and staying safe. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, the reason I'm calling is the fact that uh, I understand the border's been reopened to passionate visits and uh, people who are coming to visit uh, family members at, for funerals. Now, they say you have to quarantine for 14 days. Um, it's almost impossible to go to a funeral and quarantine for 14 days before you visit anybody when funerals are usually over within a matter of a few days. Uh you make a very good point, Danny. Absolutely, and uh, in some religions, they're uh, less than a few days after. Um, yeah. So, uh, what are you saying? Would you like those restrictions eased more, or why bother? Well, the thing is, is like, what are we? What are we actually opening the border to? When uh, you know, 
as family members have been able to say goodbye to their parents and, and so on uh, that are local, um, now they're opening the border and saying, well, come on over, but you have to quarantine for 14 days. It's a, it's a, a, a mute uh, question. Yep. Moot, yeah. Thank you, Danny, for that. You're very welcome. Yeah. Have a great day. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I was I was just gonna say I, I, I certainly, you know, sympathize with the point that the um the practicalities of, of easing our border restrictions don't always uh you know align well with the intention. And of course, um this this pandemic has been very difficult for anyone uh, you know, trying to, you know, celebrate you know, life or end of life milestones together. And, uh, you know, obviously there's tremendous will to allow that to happen more easily. Um, but, but for funerals, especially the, the 14 day quarantine certainly poses challenges. And, and I, I guess that the, you know, expectation from government would be that, you know, where possible, um, for, for religions where, where it's, it's permissible or, 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 um, you know, people who are not religious, that, that the idea would be that you would need to delay the funeral, um, you know, if you were having visitors from across the border until such a time as their quarantine window ended. Yeah, and there, there are a lot of virtual uh, funerals. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, so, uh, Dr. Morris, are you happy about the easing that happened, or is that a problem too? It, it is a challenge. As, you know, we, we've seen in um, Vancouver, there are four flights over the past 24 hours that have arrived with known uh, cases on board. And, you know, so importing cases when we're already struggling with uh, our homegrown cases um, does make it a real challenge. I think if we put in strong measures to ensure that people are quarantining upon arrival, then this can be done uh, safely. And that's, there are many countries around the world that are doing that. Uh, we aren't uh, doing it to the same degree. Well, I remember hearing stories about people who were, who were called by officials to make sure they were quarantining. This was in stage one. But, you know, if we can't even contact Trace, how are we going to be able to do that? It, it, it is the different arm of government yeah. uh, to some degree that that's involved. And uh, so th- I think that's part of it. As long as you uh, resource um, these uh, ar- various arms a- agencies, uh, organizations, then we should be able to do it. Um, but we have to be committed to ensure that uh, this gets done. And that means uh, making it a priority. Okay. Um, so in, in terms of um, the second wave, Let's just get a sense. Where are we at? Are we are we at the beginning of it? And and do you anticipate that it's just going to build? I I think that that there's no question that we're we're in the midst of the second wave. And given the fact that there there haven't been there hasn't been much yet in the way of of meaningful um, increases in restrictions, uh, it's it's only going to grow for for the foreseeable future. As as again, my colleague alluded to earlier, you know, we we have a two week delay um, between any interventions and seeing changes in cases. And so, you know, we should expect to see many more weeks of increase, uh, which will inevitably make this surpass the first wave in terms of um, 
the numbers of detected cases. And so um, it's, it's going to be, I think, uh, a challenging um, few months. And Dr. Morris, last 20 seconds to you. Yeah, I, I think, uh, as my colleague just mentioned, this will uh, continue to rise. It really, uh, every jurisdiction in the world that um, hasn't acted at a similar stage has seen it uh, grow exponentially until uh, further uh, restrictions are put in place. And I anticipate we're going to have the same experience here. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Andrew Morris and Dr. Matthew Miller. We really appreciate your insights. Pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Okay. And that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.